Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of Asia Pacific Perspective. Of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of Cor- CorbettReport.com, and today we're joined, as always, by our good friend Brock West there on the other side of the Asia Pacific region, keeping a tab on all of the things floating across the Asia Pacific newswires at AP Perspective. Uh, Brock, always good to have this little chat and to catch up on everything that's going on in our neck of the woods. So uh, thanks for coming back on. James, absolutely a pleasure. It's good to be back again, mate. How you been? Not too bad, not too great, <laughs> as I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, and especially here in the Asia Pacific. Uh, let's let's talk about what's happening here. Sure. Well, as always, there's a lot to cover. Uh, James, we'll take our first story in our first segment from Russia today, with the headline reading: "Pacific Naval Powers Sign Pact Aimed at Preventing Conflicts." Quote. As U.S. military action increases in the Western Pacific, more than 20 countries became signatories to an agreement on Tuesday that establishes guidelines for communication while hoping to halt military maneuvers in disputed areas. More than 20 countries from the Western Pacific region unanimously signed up to the non-binding framework, including China, Japan, the Philippines and Malaysia. A draft of the document attained by Reuters is described as a handbook for maneuvers and communication when naval ships and aircraft from the signing countries encounter each other unexpectedly. The agreement comes amid heightened naval activity in the region, largely due to a change in US defence policy that now focuses greater attention on the Pacific Ocean. James, I get asked this question uh, the most, and and that is, how likely is a, is a war to break out between US and China, or Japan and China, or Australia and Indonesia? And my answer usually is always the same. The potential for a conflict is definitely there. Uh, and, and steadily increasing as we've been reporting here on Asia Pacific Perspective for the last 15 months. But in my opinion, there is no real benefit for either side to become the catalyst just yet. Uh, all these players in this Asia pivot game of chess, if you want to call it that, are still moving their theoretical military pieces into play, if you will. And that's why I think that something like this non-binding sea pact has been agreed upon. So on the surface, it can be seen as a positive step, and sure, it, it is. But for me, it's, it's just a means to an end for all the players in the game to keep advancing and increasing their forces without going past that point of return. Now, the question is, where is that point of return? And that remains to be seen, James. I think you're exactly right about that. I was looking at this story, and yes, it is not exactly a groundbreaking treaty that's been signed here. It's non-binding, as you mentioned, and it really only relates to signals passed between ships. I mean, this has nothing to do with the territorial disputes in the South China Sea, which which we've been covering and which has definitely been a flashpoint. But Having said that, it is, at the very least, it's one of the first signs I've seen in the entire time we've been covering this issue of any sort of step back away from that brink rather than a step towards it. So at least from that perspective, it's uh, somewhat uh, hopeful. Um, and I, I, I agree with your analysis. I think that ultimately there's, I don't think anyone wants a hot war at this point. Uh, the Chinese wouldn't, wouldn't last 10 seconds in a real hot war at this point because their military, although it is increasing and is modernizing with the help of U.S. Uh, technologies, by the way, but even, even so, it's still nothing compared to the U.S. forces and even, even the U.S. forces that are deployed to the region, let alone U.S. forces in total. So, so I don't think they want a, a hot war. And I don't think the U.S. does either because, again, they're getting all sorts of contracts from the, uh, the increase in tensions as we're going to get into next. Absolutely. Well, you, you have segued it perfectly for us. So let's move right into our second segment here, James, with a story that broke uh, earlier in the week. Australia set to order 58 F-35 Lockheed Martin fighter jets. We'll take this one from Reuters. 
Quote, Australia announced plans on Wednesday to order 58 more F-35 fighter jets built by, of course, Lockheed Martin Corp for 12 billion Australian dollars. Prime Minister Tony Abbott made the announcement of the purchase around midday local time this past Wednesday in the Australian capital. The fifth generation F-35 is the most advanced fighter in production anywhere in the world and will make a vital contribution to our national security. Now, James, after my uh, blinding rage had subsided to this announcement, the two questions I hope that most Australians at least would have had their minds on would be one, what the hell do we need 58 new fighter jets for? And two, how the hell does the government expect to pay for these wonderful high-tech killing machines? Well, have no fear, my fellow Aussies, because our fearless misleader, Tony Abbott, has your answers and we'll take, the, uh, we'll take his response from 9msn.com with the headline reading, $12 billion worth of jets are for the unexpected because you never know what's around the corner. Quote, you just don't know when you might need a powerful defence capability, he told reporters in Canberra. To use the words of the US Pentagon official in charge of their development, the F-35 is built on the premise that it will see first, shoot first and kill first. Mr Abbott defended the government's decision by citing the unexpected need in 1990 to send a substantial military force to East Timor and Australia's contribution to the illegal invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Because uh, He continues on, because the world remained in a difficult and often dangerous place, sensible countries had to have strong, capable military forces of dealing with foreseeable and unforeseeable contingencies. In any event, successive federal governments have been screwing away funds for this program. While Mr Abbott hailed bipartisan political support for the program, unsurprisingly not everyone in Australia or his government is impressed. So James, there are never any, never any funds to maintain the roads or improve our ailing health and education system, but there's always money for the good people of Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, AGO, NSA, etc, etc. So James, with that said, let me ask you, what is around the corner that Mr Abbott's so worried about? Um, I, I would say the boogeyman and, uh, and, and exactly. I mean, what do they need specifically with an F-35, a stealth fighter jet technology? It's, it's almost as if they're, they're not fighting the war on terror anymore. It's almost like they're going back to some sort of cold war era where they're envisioning these fighter jet sort of war. Oh, oh wait, that's right. We are back to that. Oh, they're just flipping the page on the script a couple pages back so that they can go back to the, the old Cold War era technologies. And so here we are now. They're envisioning fighter jets as being the, you know, the core part of their, their, their defense now. Um, ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And one of the ridiculous things about this, I mean, not only the $12 billion that, uh, that Australia is committing to this, but think um, from, the, from the American side, the F-35 has been one of the biggest boondoggles in the history of military technologies. Vastly behind schedule, vastly over budget. Each single jet costs $90 million. Uh, the U.S. Air Force committed back in 2011 to buy 2,443 of them for a grand total of $382 billion. And the Government Accountability Office back in 2011 was estimating that that would cost over $650 billion to maintain that fleet of fighters, bringing the grand total of the, the U.S. F-35 uh, uh, project to over a trillion dollars, which The Atlantic back in 2011 had a headline that's uh, pretty apropos, the F-35, a weapon that costs more than Australia. <laughs> it's more than the Australian GDP that they've committed to the F-35 program. And again, when was the last time fighter jets were being used in some sort of hot war situation? Oh wait, that's right, never. I mean, this is just ridiculous that they're committing this type 
of uh, resources to it. But of course, it's not about military. It's not about defense. It's not about safety. It's not about security. It's not about defending human rights of people around the world or any of this crap that they put on top of it. It is about the money and it is about diverting it to Lockheed Martin and the other insider globalist companies. That's all it's about. And they're Anything else on top of it is pretense and uh, political bunk. And so you have the abbots of the world coming out as the uh, the smiling face of the, the, the people of Australia who are so committed to this, when, of course, as you say, the average Australian probably doesn't see the need for this in the first place. Yeah, and exactly right. And, the, I mean, the most telling, one of the most telling points in that article was that the successive federal governments have been squirreling away these funds, so hiding hiding these funds and just keeping away in the vaults of the Parliament House or wherever, or in, you know, offshore banks or wherever, you know, but there's, and all the while there's been talks and rumblings of uh, UK-style austerity measures to be brought in if uh, Australia can't get its debt under, under control. Uh, James, just quickly before we move on, um, also some related military manoeuvre updates, which we will, of course, uh, put in the show notes for the audience to go out and do their own research and look into further. Um, Asian region bucks global military spending decline, as we've just demonstrated there. Uh, Japan expands army footprint for first time in 40 years. And finally, South Korea claims North Korea is about to conduct another nuclear test, while a US think tank says it's unlikely. So James, uh, for our third and final segment, we've all heard of local politics, national politics, but one lesser used, and I would argue most influential, is the pipeline politics. And I know this is something you've gone into great detail of. So, However, this story is about to show that these pipeline politics can tr transcend all other ide ideological, financial, political and cultural differences. And we'll take this story from naturalgasasia.com. In order to facilitate construction of a gas pipeline to South Korea, Russia has agreed to write off almost 10 billion, about 90% of North Korea's Soviet-era debt, reports news agency Reuters. On Friday, the State Duma lower house ratified the 2012 agreement to write off the bulk of North Korea's debt, which stood at $10.96 billion. As per the report, the rest of the debt, 1.09 billion rather, would be redeemed during the next 20 years to be paid in equal installments every six months. Gazprom has been planning to build a gas pipeline to South Korea via North Korea, which would carry 10 billion cubic metres of gas per year. Meanwhile, Russia has been trying to, trying to diversify its energy sales to Asia away from Europe. Moscow aims to reach a deal to supply gas to China after decades of talk this May. Uh, James, you and many others in the independent media have gone to great works exposing the pipeline politics underlying the Ukrainian situation right now, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, this interesting development. Well, this doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, this is, in fact, something that I was explicitly writing about in the last edition of my uh, subscriber newsletter, where I was talking about um, how the uh, the Ukrainian situation is creating the 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 exact um, I guess necessity for Russia to start diversifying its uh, its client pool for its natural gas, and they are absolutely 100%. There's no doubt about it. They're turning to Asia as part of that plan. And again, it was no coincidence that as literally as Putin was signing the Crimean annexation, one of his t top lieutenants was in Tokyo on a on a, a tour of East Asia drumming up business for, for Russian uh, gas contracts. Um, and 
Uh, we, we saw the purchase of Kyrgyz Gaz recently by Gazprom for a dollar. They're taking that over and completely modernizing it and, and reforming the, the company. Uh, we've seen the, the talk about the Holy Grail gas deal between China and Russia, which if it happens, is going to be an exceptionally important geopolitical event. The largest gas exporter in the world and the largest gas importer in the world finally signing an agreement and finally putting a pipeline in place, if that agreement is signed, is going to be huge. And here we have another example of this at play. $10 billion in debt? Fine. Who cares? It's gone. Uh, Just as long as we can get that pipeline through your country. This is the type of thing that happens with these pipeline politics. And this really, I mean, uh, the pipelines are, are I think, the, the perfect symbol of these types of relations that are created in the resource wars because these are literally hardwired into place. They're, they're connections between countries that become part of the infrastructure of the, wor- of the globe that forms the geopolitics that follows. So once you have pipelines between countries, they're, they're more wedded at the hip than they are through any kind of political agreements or treaties or that type of thing, which can be broken you know, at the, at the flip of a switch. Pipelines are, are really hardwiring relations into place. So it's exceptionally important what's happening now, and there's absolutely no doubt Russia is turning to Asia for its uh, gas exports. So it's going to become uh, even that much more important on the sort of global geopolitical field um, in the the coming years. And this is just another reason why I think APP is going to be, the Asia-Pacific perspective is going to be an important blog for keeping track of this as this continues to develop. I hope so, James. I think you're right there. And just related to that, I saw also a few a week ago, I think it was, uh, an article coming from The Diplomat uh, asking the question, is an, is an Asian NATO possible? So we'll definitely put that in the show notes as well, because that's definitely going to be an interesting development if that starts to, uh, if the wicks start to get turned up on that, so to speak. So just quickly before we finish today, James, I, um, I understand you are in Tokyo for the last few days doing some reporting for GRT, but I think it's time you come clean with us all and tell the truth, you were there hiding in the bushes somewhere in central Tokyo, hoping to get a glimpse of your idol and your hero, Justin Bieber, weren't you? You found me out, yes. Not only Justin Bieber, but also Barack Obama. But yes, Justin Bieber was in town, and guess what he was visiting? The Yasukuni Shrine! And for anyone who doesn't know what the Yasukuni Shrine is, um, basically this is the touchstone of, uh, of sort of Japanese politics uh, in relation to its Asian neighbors, uh, where the... The, the, the spirits of, uh, of 14 Class A war criminals from World War II are housed, and which is a, a, a political touchstone issue because prime ministers here have the tendency or high-ranking political officials go to pay their respects to these uh, spirits in, housed in the shrine. And it ca- causes a huge political furor every single time anyone does a visit here. And so Justin Bieber, apparently in his stop in Tokyo, decided to go to Yasukuni Shrine. It's just it's so ridiculous. It's such a ridiculous story. He obviously has zero clue about what this means or, or the, the importance of it. But uh, it, it, of course, China and South Korea and the other Asian neighbors here kicked up a fuss about it. So he's already had to come out and apologize about it. Just a, a silly story, but uh, just goes to show what you can put your foot into when you have no idea about the culture you're visiting. Absolutely. It, it was kind of interesting to see, I'm uh, just reading that, that one document that you sent, that article you sent me from The Independent, where some, some of his most loyal fans were requesting that he be banned from, from South Korea and banned from performing concerts all throughout Asia. I mean, that's really how, um, how hot of a topic the, the uh, Yasukuni Shrine is at the moment. But James, we have to leave it there for today. Uh, as always, three important stories. Um, once again, thanks for having me on. Cheers. I'm looking forward to next time.